Welcome to Entangled Things and the Fascinating World of Quantum Computing. Episode 1 seeks to cover some of the core facts to know about quantum computing. Patrick and Cyprian discuss at a high level the need for quantum computing, the problems quantum computing can solve, and how quantum computing relates to classical computing. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Cyprian, what's your interest in quantum computing? Well, Patrick, the interest goes well back to my early years in computer science. Actually, I would rather define myself as being a failed physicist. When I was very, very young, I had two big areas that I loved a lot. One was computer science. The other one was quantum physics. So as I was in my early 20s, I started to study quantum physics. Uh, Eventually, I ended up as a computer scientist, but still that was one of my first uh, scientific loves. So I... At that time, I didn't imagine that fast forward 20 years or something, we will be at a point where we will be discussing how quantum physics can be used to build actual quantum computers. It's, it's, it's a moment in time, it's a period in time that makes me like, super excited and in the same time super interested because now it seems that what once was a beautiful idea, uh, wishful thinking, now it's on the path of becoming reality. Cool. Um, so the reason I'm mostly interested in it is because, as you know, my background security. After I got out of the military, I've been doing pen testing and that kind of stuff for a long time. And I think this is the real thing that's going to change the spectrum, going to change the game, if you will. And we'll talk a lot in future episodes about how this affects security. Uh, I've also been a, a student of physics for a long time uh, as a sideline, but um, I think this is also an opportunity for all of us because I think this is the one buzzword in the computing world that we can see coming. Uh, I didn't predict big data or machine learning just before they broke out, uh, but this one, we're definitely seeing it coming for four or more years down the line. So yeah. first thing, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and the the other thing that that makes me very very interested and and excited is I know a lot of problems in classical computing that are simply unsolvable today. We simply do not have enough computing power to solve those problems. And quantum computers are the ones that provide this promise that we will be able if not fully solve but at least tackle in a much more efficient way those problems. So that makes me, uh, again, very, very interesting and excited about quantum computing. So let's dig into that, because the first question we want to address here is, why do we need quantum computing? What's your answer to that when somebody asks? Well, the the answer is basically uh, related to what I've just said. We have this need of solving very, very complex problems that we just cannot solve using classical quantum com, uh, classical uh, computing. And the example that I, I like to, to, to give is an example about a very, very simple simulation. Like think about you have a system of electrons that can take 40 positions, which means that the system has two at the power of 
of 40 configurations since each one of those positions can have or will have or will not have an electron in that position. So you need to track the, the probabilities of 2 at the power of 40 configurations, which roughly gives you uh, a need of around 130 gigabytes of, of memory. Now, imagine that instead of 40 electrons, you need to actually simulate systems that have a much higher number of electrons. The immediate question is, where do you need to do that? Well, think about materials science, for example, right? Now, the idea is that the requirements of memory to do it in a classical way are obviously exploding exponentially to the point where if you would have slightly above 300 uh, positions to simulate, the number of memory locations that you would need would exceed the total number of particles in the known universe. Uh, does that make sense to you? <laughs> so it, it does. And, and this is one of the things that you've really captured my imagination with. Because when we first started talking about this years ago, um, you gave this example. And, and what you're talking about is the ability to model material science and revolutionize chemistry in a way that classical computing hasn't been able to do. You're talking about being able to create a Kevlar or a nylon or, or a new material every six hours instead of every six years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you, if you think about the big problems humanity is, is facing today, I would, I would argue that a, a large portion of those problems could be solved by inventing or identifying new materials. Think about agriculture and the good old problem of fertilizers. We're, we're still using like a, a kindergarten-like approach to create fertilizers. Think about space travel. We need to protect our spaceships. We need to protect our astronauts. And remember, we still haven't really left the protective shroud of Earth's magnetic field. So when we're thinking about traveling to Mars or even beyond, we will definitely need new materials, not to mention the elephant in the room, which is medicine. And the list can go on and on and on. So the capability of understanding the evolution of complex natural structures, and I'm referring here to molecules, in order to build new materials becomes critical not only for the evolution, but at some point, I dare to say, for the survival of the human species. So that's very interesting for you know the sci-fi geeks and, and everybody who thinks about those material science. But there's other applications. There's a lot of other problems that classical computers can't scale to meet that quantum is going to be able to solve. And so basically, we're talking about we've all been very happy with our geometry, for example, you know, 5,000 years ago. And we don't imagine what life will be like with an algebra, but once it's created or a calculus, if you talk about later maths, it opens up a whole new world. So I, I, the analogy I might use is that classical computing is, is like an algebra or a geometry and calculus, which takes us to the next level, is what quantum computing could bring us. It could, it could change the way we think about everything. One interesting note, there's a company out of Vancouver named OneQubit. And they have been programming, and we'll talk about programming quantum in later episodes. That's probably too much for the first episode. 
they've been programming problems using a quantum algorithm that simulate using a simulated quantum computer. So it's still silicon. It's still classical computing. But they're finding that even just reimagining the problem in a quantum uh, paradigm gives them an 8% increase on efficiency. And that if once they get actual quantum computers behind the calculations, they see hundredfold increases in, in, in uh, performance, in, in, in productivity. And so even if we don't get to quantum computers in the next years, it's worth paying attention to already. So I think that, that we understand the why now. Somebody listening to us is going to understand what the why is. What is it now? So you've mentioned, you mentioned these positions and, and analogous, analogous to memory on a regular computer. What is quantum computing? How does it work? Yeah, so uh, think about, again, coming back to the example on, on the, the positions of, of electrons. And that is kind of part of a much more complex problem, as I said, of, of, of simulating or understanding processes in, in nature. And this, this observation leads to, to the, the fundamental vision that, that sits behind quantum computing as like, what if we could find a way to turn this, this difficult problem into a huge opportunity? So if those, those quantum processes are, are so difficult to, to simulate with classical computing, what if we could build a computer that uses those quantum processes as the, the core of its, of its functionality? So instead of relying on the classical computing processes, what if we could build computers that, that use that, that interaction of, of, of particles at the quantum level to perform computation? And that's kind of the, the core idea that, that led to everything that we know today collectively as the, 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 the field of, of quantum computing. Does, does that, that make sense? Yeah, it, it, the way I might explain it is we need a better bit. So a bit in classical computing is an on and off switch. It's either on or it's off. It's binary, and that's the basis of all classical computing. And it scales very well compared to an abacus or you know counting beads or, or whatever. Uh, but we've reached its limits. Now it's, uh, you've already pointed out problems that it can't solve. So how do we get a better bit? Well, the better bit would be a qubit. And the qubit is, or qubit, how, depending on how you say it, is a bit that has a value from zero to one. It's not either zero or one in the truest sense. It's a probability between those two infinitely distanced values. And so that means one qubit can hold an infinite number of, of values, not just zero and one. It gets complicated after that. But, but that's the crux of it, is, is a quantum computer uses bits that are infinite in value instead of binary in value. Yeah, and think about it uh, as, as well like this. So with a classical computer, you will use silicon-based chips. And those silicon-based chips, they represent bits, as you said, a bit can have only two clear and distinct states, zero or one. And those silicon-based chips are running some physical processes that run at a level that it's high enough 
far enough from the level of quantum physics that makes the measuring, the setting, and the keeping of those states quite easy to, to implement. Now, as opposed to a classical computer, a quantum computer will use quantum systems like atoms, ions, photons, electrons, and, and so forth. And the, the fundamental property of, of these systems embodied in the concept of a qubit is the fact that the state can be a, a superposition. And let's, do, let's propose to our listener a very simple uh, exercise of imagination. You're, you're sitting in your, in your living room, right? Turn your body and face all the way to the left and then all the way to the right. That's, that's something very easy that you can do. Now, I challenge you to turn to your left and to your right at the same time. That is something that obviously in the current world of physics is, is impossible. But what's interesting and, and it's uh, fascinating to me, right, that if you are a particle in the quantum world, then you actually can do that. As a matter of fact, there will be a probability that you are looking left and the probability that you are looking right. And obviously, the sum of those probabilities must be one, but your state is going to be what we call a superposition. So instead of, 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 of having two distinct states, the fundamental thing that... that makes a qubit so powerful is the fact that it can have an infinite number of states as opposed to two states that a bit has. And, and building on that, we have already built the whole kind of uh, logical uh, uh, structure that allows us to transform this into concepts related to computing. So at this point, the casual listener should be head, head have their head spinning because this is heavy stuff. Superposition is a, a class that is taught at MIT and Caltech and some of the greatest institutions, and takes a long time, even for people with strong physics backgrounds, to get their head around. Um, so we're going to come back to this. We're going to talk about it. There's lots of great videos online and YouTube. Uh, Fermilab has great videos, and there's a bunch of different. Um, videos on superposition. Superposition, I don't think is well-named. I understand it, but you almost have to understand it before the name helps. And that, that actually isn't very helpful. It's kind um, of like a chicken and egg situation, yes, right? Yes, very much so. Very much so. It, it's, oh, oh, once you understand superposition, the name makes sense. But before then, it's just, it just actually confuses things. Thank you for listening to Entangled Things. Here's a word from our sponsors. This week's episode is sponsored by Pulsar Security. Introducing Sonar, Wi-Fi security as a service. With Wi-Fi being available in most corporate networks, it is imperative companies know what devices are broadcasting within range or authenticating to the corporate network. With Sonar, you'll receive alerts, monthly reports, and access to our team to uncover and help fix your Wi-Fi security weaknesses. Sonar, protect your data. Visit Sonar dot pulsarsecurity dot com slash entangled to learn more. Um, I'm going to take 
a very quick stab at, at giving another another understanding of that. And that is what when, when we dig down into the deep, dark secrets of molecular physics, physics at the atomic level, we found out that we are not allowed through whatever, for whatever reason, there's many different explanations for why that might be the reason, to know everything there is to know about a, a particle, of a photon, a quark, etc. We can know its position, we can know its speed, but we can't know both to a precision at the same time. And so it's that uncertainty, the uncertainty principle comes into play, that we're using to make calculations and predictions. And it's amazing that they've they've basically taken lightning and put it in a bottle with this quantum computing. And so that leads to the, okay, so a kind of, if I accept everything we've said, why is it hard to build a quantum computer? Why don't we have them? Well, there are two reasons for, for that. One is it's really hard to build a physical quantum computer but we will get to that a little bit later in our in our discussion. The other one, though, is some kind of very interesting protection, if I may call it like this, that nature has in place when it comes to quantum phenomena. So let me get back to this example with the exercise. Suppose I'm looking left and 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 right, and I'm moving between left and right, and at some point you come into the same room and you try to take a picture of me exercising. So most probably, no matter how many pictures you take, you will kind of uh, have me somewhere in the between looking all the way to the left and all the way to the, to the right. Now, if I'm now a quantum particle, some, some very interesting thing will happen. No matter how many pictures you take of me, you will always have me in those pictures, either looking to the left, totally to the left, or completely looking to the right. Never in transition. Be, Never a transition. Be not a single picture where I will be somewhere in between. Now, in quantum computing, what we the the, the name for this is. Uh, collapsing the superposition state. In other words, that qubit that can have a potential infinite states between zero and one, the moment you measure it, you will either get a zero or a one. And that's one of the, the things that, that makes writing alg designing algorithms and writing programs in quantum computing very, very hard. The analogy that I give to a lot of folks is, uh, it's a little bit forced, but it's still good, I believe. Imagine working with a database and the only type of operation that you are allowed to do is to write into the, into the database. Whenever you read something from the database, you will always get one of two results. So the challenge is write a program that works with that database. It's, it's pretty difficult, right? Mm. Yes. So, so to take your analogy and, and bring it home, I think, um, 
if I wanted to know whether you were going to be facing right or left under a certain circumstance, maybe, um, you know, at, at the top of the hour, and, um, and I had reason to believe that, you know, you, you consistently are either facing right or left at the top of every hour. What I could do is I could take that measurement, but it's going to be either you're facing right or facing left. But if I take that measurement a hundred times and 70% of the time you're facing left and 30% and of the time you're facing right, I can make the prediction that 70, with 70% certainty that left is the right answer. Left is the correct answer. And yeah, that's yeah. how quantum computing works currently, is they, they set up a, a circumstance, they make a prediction based on that calculation, and then they observe it not just once, but repeatedly to come up with a probability. It's kind of like facial recognition. Facial recognition doesn't work with certainties. If you show a facial recognition program a face, it gives you a percentage. Yeah, 97% that that is Cyprian. Or it might, you know, you might be wearing glasses and a hoodie, and it might say, 30% that it's Cyprian, but I still think it might be Cyprian, but I'm only 30% sure. That's the quantum way of calculating things, correct? Yeah, yeah. Now imagine a common friend of us has a way to uh, reset my position in the room, right? So imagine this, I'm in the room and let's imagine that position is me looking 45 degrees to the left. So that friend comes into the room, sets me looking 45 degrees into the room, left, uh, leaves the room, you come in and you take a picture. So as you said, you will either have me looking all the way to the left or all the way to the right. Now, imagine that we repeat this process, let's say a hundred times or a thousand times or a hundred thousand times the the more we repeat the process the, the, the closer we will be to a split of 75 to 25 right so you will see me probably out of a a hundred thousand measurements you will see me 75,000 times looking all the way to the left 25,000 times looking all the way to the to, to, to the right. And actually, from a mathematical point of view, we would need to repeat this an infinite number of times to get that exact yeah. initial state that our common friend resets me uh, to. And that's that's the core of why is difficult to work and to understand at the end of the day, quantum computing. Yeah, there's also the aspect that we're dealing, you know, a, a bit is very small, but it's enormous compared to a qubit because a qubit is, is literally a single photon or a single particle. It's even a fractional particle in some cases. Um, so the, uh, one of the other problems is that if you add the heat of observation, the heat, the, the, the extra energy of just monitoring the situation. Uh, the temperatures that we're dealing with with quantum computing are closer to absolute zero than the vacuum of space. So that that actually is the biggest impediment to, to doing this is how do you shine light on an electron so you can see what it's doing without overwhelming the electron? It's like right, trying to run a classical computer in a uh, in the in an electromagnet. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there are some other even more weird properties that 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 adds to the complexity. We will we will clearly cover them in in subsequent episodes of our show. But one of them which I would like to just kind of introduce right now is uh, entanglement. Entanglement being probably one of the most mind-bending or puzzling Hence, phenomenon of, of, of quantum computing. Hence the and name of our podcast. Exactly, right? There, there's a reason why the name of our podcast is Entangled Things. So it turns out that two or more quantum particles can become entangled. And by that, we mean they form like a, a, a single system where the state of, of each particle cannot be described independently from the state of other particles. And what's the really kind of mind-bending thing is that if you separate those particles with with incredible distances like even even think about light years here we we cannot yet do that for obvious reasons but even if you separate them with the distances in the order of of light years the effects of measurement will apply to entangled particles so let's give a simpler example if you have two entangled particles you separate them them say on two different continents one is over here uh in my house in europe the other one is over there patrick in your house in the united states so what right. happens is if you measure the particle that it's at your house in the united states as we said the state will collapse and you will get a zero or a one. But what's, what's unbelievable is that the moment you measure your particle and its state collapses, my particle state will also collapse and I will get a zero or, or, or a one. By the way, that, that, that this, this phenomenon is one of the things that, that puzzled Einstein for a long, long, long time. He he had a, a really, really, really hard time grasping the fact that this is actually how entangled particles work. Well, it made him question the entire thing. of It made him hate quantum mechanics. He thought that, uh, how did he call it? He said, spooky action at a distance. And yeah, you know, that, that's, 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 that's one of his, his uh, kind of known uh quotes the other one is related to heisenberg's uh principle of uncertainty right and but and einstein is known as saying yeah god does not play dice right right and but those are the principles that we're we're counting on for this those are the principles that that power all this well we're coming to a point where we've co- we've touched on a lot of the high level stuff but but who are the players let's talk about the people who are actually putting this together we have to first acknowledge that the governments of the world, uh, China, the United States, probably Russia, behind the scenes are playing. And in some cases, not behind the scenes. China's acknowledged that they're working on quantum communications with a satellite. And there's been recent articles about successes in quantum communications uh, where they've 
you know, been able to communicate instantly over 27 miles, those kinds of things. But let's talk about the major players. Who, who do you think are the biggest players of note in building the, the first quantum computers? So there are, there are two categories of players here. There, there are players who aim to build the actual quantum processors, and those players can be further divided into the ones that attempt to build what we call circuit-based quantum processors, or in other words, universal quantum computers. And by the way, a universal quantum computer would be a computer that will allow you to actually implement using it any quantum computing algorithm. And then the other category is the ones that are building the so-called annealing quantum processors, which are dealing with a much more limited applicability and and scenario. So these are what I call the builders. And and they muddy the water quite a bit. Somebody who's just trying to pay attention to this out of the corner of their eye would hear conflicting reports. They might hear that IBM has a 53-qubit system, and that's a breakthrough. And then, but a week before or a month before, hear that T-Wave has a a 2,000-qubit system. And it's not apples to apples. They're not doing the same thing. No, 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 they're not. So the 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 big game is building the circuit-based quantum processor or the universal quantum computing. And here you have players like, you mentioned IBM, you have uh, uh, Google, uh, you have some of the um, uh, uh, Chinese, like the University of Science and Technology of China, USTC, uh, and you also have a, a, a quite interesting startup, which is Rigetti. And these are attempting to build using uh, what I like to call the easier path. So they're eas- either using photonics or superconductors. Now, there is, there is a distinct player in this group, which is Microsoft. And Microsoft is attempting to build a quantum computer, a universal quantum computer, using a radically different approach, which is called topological quantum computing, which actually, without getting into the the very complex details, uses properties of matter when matter is close to absolute zero, which is zero Kelvin. Turns out that when you cool down matter very, very close to absolute zero, the topological properties of matter allow you to to have a much more stable environment where you can work with these uh, particles that we, we have discussed about. Hence, you get stable qubits. And just for our audience to understand, the biggest problem is keeping the qubits stable. So in classical computing, it's very easy to keep a transistor stable, right? Because you use voltages, usually zero or plus minus five volts, and that's very easy. That's you, you learn that in the fifth or sixth grade. It's basic physics. Now, keeping the state of a qubit, because the qubit works at a much, much lower physical level, is very, very difficult. Very difficult. Let me break in. And you, you, one of the things that people have to understand is zero Kelvin 
absolute zero is negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit and negative 273 degrees, 0.15 degrees Celsius. So I just want to make sure we, we highlight the fact that we're talking about colder than anything in nature, including the vacuum of space. And, and that's why I, I wanted to just reiterate that. Yeah. And to, to go further with your example, the, the coldest places in outer space are around three Kelvin, zero Kelvin being absolute zero. The typical temperature at what which you aim to work with a quantum computer is around 30 millikelvin, right. which is a hundred times colder than the temperature of outer space. So even from this, you can imagine the, the difficulty of, of building those physical machines. Now, for those who are listening to us, let me say from right from the beginning, it's not impossible. No. Right. Actually, folks have already done that, but it's very difficult. Right. And so you're and I didn't mean to break your flow, but but I think people have to understand that with with all the quantum computing mechanisms that we've seen, every company, every country's approach requires these cold temperatures because otherwise you're trying to it's, it's trying to find a tear in the rain. There's just too much noise. There's too much um, at higher temperatures, you'd never be able to see the signal. There'd be too much jumping around. So that's where a lot of the, the now Microsoft's approach, as you've said, is using a different form of matter. And and actually, the, since they they seem like they're behind, if you if you really were were looking at this out of the corner of your eye, you might think Microsoft is all just simulation. But if they're right, if their if their form of matter is is what they think it's going to be, they should shoot right ahead. They should have much more stable and the ability to have many more qubits faster. And that's the bet, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, I love that, that, that saying, there is no free lunch. Mm. And that, that applies. I, by the way, just as a side note, I have not yet seen a field, an area, a problem in computer science where this does not apply. So when building a quantum computer, it applies again. I mentioned about the players that are using superconductors or photonics or, or things that are in, in the same realm. Now, this is a relatively easier way to build a quantum computer. The price that you pay is that scaling up the number of stable qubits is very difficult. And, and as of today, you only have, at most, tens of stable qubits. And when I say stable, think about in this world, stability means that a qubit is able to retain its state for a fraction of a second. So, so just to, to, to put things into perspective. Now, mm. why, why Microsoft's approach is, is very promising is because using topological computing the the topological state of matter the promise that this approach has is that once you build the first qubit then scaling up to a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand it's just gonna be a problem of of scaling your process right 
while with with the other ones it becomes more and more difficult the 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 more you add new qubits it becomes increasingly difficult to keep their coherence or as we say to keep their to keep their state stable so like that's I, I i agree with what you say right when when microsoft produces their their first few stable qubits using topological quantum computing uh they will be clearly ahead of the pack so we've covered a lot of ground so we talked about why we need quantum computing and we've probably just scratched the surface of that we talked about what it is but but there's so much more to discuss on on everything from heisenberg principle of superposition the double slit experiment um without making this a physics course uh we talked about quantum versus classic including why it's so hard to build a quantum computer and we've just touched on who some of the players are and and who to watch is there anything else we we want to add before we top off this first episode by the way this first episode is meant to be a bit of a primer but that's probably true of the first half dozen episodes that we plan yeah yeah and i i'd like to to double down on what you said we we don't really want to to have this podcast as a quantum physics course no way so what we're going to do is we're going to break down some of these topics in in future episodes and we're going to discuss them and we're going to try to help folks who are listening to us to understand that the principles the high level approach the the, the concepts yep. that 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 are behind all this the only thing that I would like to add is I mentioned there there is a a bunch of 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 players who are trying to build the processors but the actual number of players in the field of of quantum computing is is much larger so there are close to 100 different companies or or organizations who are today very very active whether they are in the actual computing field or in the networking or communications or yeah. uh, research or 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 things like this right you uh you you mentioned one of those companies and that there there are lots of other there are lots of other companies without any kind of preference i would add here names like airbus uh, uh accenture uh british telecom hp hitachi um and and intel yeah that's that's a big one and 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 many and many others so there's a, a an increasing number of players the the ones that are actually kind of leading the pack in terms of of building the thing are the ones that we have we have discussed right. Uh, right. Microsoft, IBM, Rigetti, Google, USTC and and D-Wave would be the the most important names there. Once we get through these introduction sessions, uh, we'll start having guests from some of these organizations and talking about um, more more topic topical news items that relate to this and what they mean. But uh, first, we're trying to lay a good foundation. I'm I'm like, so looking forward to 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 that d- d- discussing with some of those folks. I've I've came to know a lot of them and and discuss with them. And uh, uh, I j- just as kind of like a a preview. Uh, it's it's amazing having those those people and 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 discussing with them. So I'm I'm really looking forward to to those future episodes. Me too. Me too. 
So I think that's all we have time for today. Anything, any last words before we sign off this episode, Cyprian? I, I would just like to say that, that it's, it's, I'm so happy and, and I'm grateful that I uh, live to, to work and to perform my computer science career at this particular inflection point. We're, we're so fortunate, Patrick, that we're, we're actually living the moment when, when quantum computing is, is becoming a real thing. I, I can bet that 100, 150 years from now, when historians will look back, will say, yeah, you know, the 2020s were the years when a big breakthrough in computing happened. And yeah. back then, people named it quantum computing. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be as big a change as as the digital revolution. The fact that we have quantum fully usable bias is going to be as big a game changer as as classical computing was when it first came out. Fully agree. That, I think that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode of Entangled Things.